It's Thursday, the 21st of November, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, Shinzo Abe becomes Japan's longest-serving prime minister. We'll ask Britain's former ambassador, Sir David Warren, how he's managed to remain at the top of Japanese politics for so long. And he's come to the premiership of Japan, of course, after a period of intense political volatility extending over decades. Plus, how a set of new hotels is helping to turn around a once seedy area of Kuala Lumpur. And the writer Hadley Freeman examines the changing corporate structure of movie studios and how it's radically shifted what we watch. I'm Ben Rylan in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Shinzo Abe is now officially Japan's longest-serving prime minister. He first stepped into the top job in 2006 before abruptly exiting the following year. His reign since 2012, however, has been much more successful. So is there a secret to Abe's political longevity? Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller dialed up the UK's former ambassador to Japan, Sir David Warren. Sir David, thank you for joining us. Abe, does he have a particular singular secret? Is there one thing about him which has got him to where he's got to and kept him there? Uh, it's hard to say that he does, although he's clearly a competent uh, politician uh, in Japanese terms. And he's come to the premiership of Japan, of course, after a period of intense political volatility extending over decades in Japanese politics, where prime ministers, for the most part, have come and gone and there's genuine public uh, cynicism and discontent with the fragile nature of um, Jap- the Japanese polity. So, in a sense, he's benefited from having come after a period of great, uh, great uh, uh, instability, and he's benefited also from having a very weak opposition during this period because the opposition party which was in government for three years between 2009 and 2012, when it was called the Democratic Party of Japan, has been itself riven with factions and essentially all over the place in terms of being able to land any punches on the Liberal Democratic Party government. So he hasn't any competition from within the party and he hasn't much competition from outside the party. And he's given the Japanese people a sense of stability, which I think they have respected. During your time as ambassador to Japan, what sense were you able to get of Abe's personal style? What, what, what is he like to deal with as an individual? He became prime minister again just as I left Japan at the end of my ambassadorship in 2012. So although I, I met him uh, briefly socially uh, and uh, observed him as one of a number of uh, leaders of the uh, opposition during that very, very febrile period. I didn't see his uh, his style at first hand. But he is certainly a um, powerful politician. He's a centralizing politician. He's established strong central control of the mechanisms of government, of the appointment of key personnel. Uh, he is uh, um, a, a strong leader in those terms. Uh, some in Japan would argue that he is too strong a leader, that he centralizes too much, that he um, creates a a political atmosphere where people are reluctant, as it were, to step out of line and to disagree with what comes out of the center, out of the prime minister's office. That can lead to strong and stable government in one respect. It can also lead to uh, mistakes occurring, as they have in certain areas of policy where civil servants have told politicians what they want to hear rather than giving them objective and, uh, and, and, and practical advice. 
a quick detour to Malaysia, where a once seedy part of the nation's capital is getting a makeover, thanks in no small part to a set of new hotels. Kuala Lumpur's Chokit neighbourhood has long been a haven for gambling and prostitution. But Gareth Lim from the Ormond Group is aiming to reset the area's notoriously seedy reputation with the opening of two hotels. The group specialises in taking downtrodden areas and turning them around. According to Lim, Chokit is no longer what it used to be. There's a great community and great food. And he's sure that his group's redevelopment plans can help continue that evolving narrative. This month sees the opening of the Cho Kit, designed by New York-based studio TAC, followed by the younger micro-hotel Momos next door. A packed program involving walking tours, performances and pop-up restaurants will help connect guests and locals. It seems hotels the world over are realizing that it's not enough to open a beautiful space. They have a responsibility to the community too. And finally today, the film director Martin Scorsese caused a stir recently when he suggested that superhero films are not cinema. Love blockbusters or hate them, it's hard to argue that the rise of big-budget franchise epics has made medium-sized standalone films an endangered species and almost completely rewritten our entertainment landscape. So, what happened? Hadley Freeman is a columnist at The Guardian and the author of Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies. Bueller? Bueller? Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I feel, is almost part of my blood. It was the first teen movie I ever saw, and it was the first live-action film I ever saw that wasn't an MGM musical. It was the first one my parents allowed me to see. And I watched it every day after school for more than a year, and I can still recite it. And I have had such a crush on Matthew Broderick. He was my first crush. And it's one of those movies from your childhood that really does last and changes as you get older. What's that? Sushi. Sushi? <laughs> Rice, uh, raw fish, and seaweed. You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're going to eat that? Can I eat? I don't know. Give it a try. Could these movies that we all love so much today exist now? And the truth is, with the John Hughes teen movies, probably not. Those movies were all mid-budget movies. So they weren't, you know, the cheapo indies and they weren't the big superhero films. They're in the middle. And those are the movies that aren't made by studios anymore. And that's why we now have this very weird system with movies where you get these really interesting indie films or art house films or foreign films. But then mainly what we get is huge superhero movies from DC and Marvel because movies are now made to play all around the world, whereas in the 80s they were marketed just mainly to America. A Hollywood movie's takings in um, the 80s was 80% America, 20% the rest of the world. Now that's flipped. And on the one hand, you can say it's great that America is aware of the rest of the world. But on the other hand, it means that they're getting rid of things like dialogue, because dialogue is too hard to translate for the Chinese market. And it gets rid of the specificity, which is one of the main things of John Hughes's films. They're very much about American suburban kids. Snap out of it! I can't. All right, well then I must never see you again, and the bad blood will just have to Oh, Nancy Beth was discovered in a local motel with a high political official. 
They were both hot. They've been smoking everything but their shoes. She's the first Miss Merry Christmas in history to be caught with her tinsel down around her knees. What happened during the 80s and by the end of the 80s is that all the various studios, things like Fox and Paramount, 20th Century, were bought by big conglomerates who weren't solely interested in movie making. They were interested in money making. And I'm hardly holding the 80s up here as like this era of non-capitalism bliss. Like obviously studios always want to make money. But now it was companies that saw them as just more products. You know, they could have been bottled water or something. And so movies began to be pitched in a much more, say, cynical way. This idea of quadrants. You had to hit certain quadrants. Now a quadrant is how they divide up people. So it'd be like teenage boys, teenage girls, grown men, grown women. And their theory that came out of this was that teenage boys are the ones who all go to see a movie the weekend it comes out. And what they see, the most important time for a movie to make money is that first weekend. So as long as a movie like gets to number one, it's first weekend, then they can say it's a hit. So therefore, more and more movies began to be made just for teenage boys. And teenage girls and grown women in particular really just fell by the wayside. So when you look back on the 80s, it's kind of amazing how many movies were made very clearly for grown women, you know, Steel Magnolias, Moonstruck, Baby Boom, Terms of Endearment. You don't really see those movies now. I mean, occasionally they'll come along and go, oh, well, you know, we made The Help. It's like, yeah, that's like one movie from a studio that's made for grown women. Like, who cares? And also The Help entirely stars women under 35. So, like, that's your idea of, like, playing to the older female audience. That's just tragic. Hadley Freeman there. Her book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies, is out now. That's all in today's program. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Friday.